Hello and welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy and National Security Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. This week we're diving into China's Belt and Road Initiative. China launched the initiative in 2013 as a new grand global strategy. The BRI aims to place China at the center of global economics through infrastructure, trade, and of course, energy projects. But in the years since its announcement, BRI projects and financing have come under question for corruption, debt, environmental impacts, and local benefits. In late April, China held the second Belt and Road Forum, a huge multi-day event drawing representatives from a number of countries who participate in BRI projects. The forum provided China an opportunity to demonstrate that it is trying to address some of these concerns. And the list of deliverables from the forum mentions green development a number of times, along with sustainability and environmental concerns. On our agenda for this week's episode is understanding whether China is committed to following through on the announced changes related to energy and environment. So on this week's Energy 360, my energy team colleagues Jane Nakano and Nico Safos are joined by John Hillman, who directs the Reconnecting Asia project at CSIS. John and his team closely track the projects, financing, and aspirations of BRI. Let's turn it over to them. So China hosted its second Built and Road Summit uh, from April 25th through the 27th. And, you know, this is the first summit uh, since their inaugural one two years ago. So, John, uh, you've been following infrastructure build-out in Asia in general, especially Belt and Road Initiative. So in your view, what did Beijing try to accomplish? And, and also, like, do you think they succeeded in whatever they set out to do? So I think the, the contrast between this forum and the first forum, which was only, it was less than two years ago, is pretty striking. And so I think it, it reflects the fact that Belt and Road as a brand has had a, a so, somewhat difficult time over the past two years. And so I think this forum was really an attempt to help restore some of the brand. And so, you know, everything from Xi's opening speech to the very long list of announcements that they made um, was it was you know intended to help address criticism? I mean, there was there was some taking credit of what they felt were successes, but a lot of this was also an attempt to address criticism of projects you know not being sustainable, both financially and environmentally. Concerns about corruption, concerns about ulterior non-economic motives, um, and so I think you see that really that came out in Xi's speech as well as you know a very long list of deliverables, and a lot of that is actually in the areas that you guys cover because you know criticism of the environmental impacts of Belt and Road projects has been you know it's been one of the main criticisms, and so there were a number of things that were announced to try to say the Belt and Road will be green. Yeah, and and certainly I think the greening in my view has become sort of a sub theme for the Chinese under the Belt and Road Initiative. And, you know, there are quite a few uh, green-related deliverables, if you will. But, you know, it's uh, it's still, I feel that it's sort of a work in progress. Um, you know, Nikos, you know, you've been following some of the sort of project-level developments, right? Do you think there have been both sort of a positive steps that the uh, China has been taking under Belt and Road, as well as some, you know, of the stuff that are, that really merit the concern that uh, seemed to be addressed by some of the Belt and Road target economies in terms of quality and, and uh, the environmental sustainability of projects. Yeah, so I think, you know, the way I look at it is I try to place the Belt and Road Initiative in the context of the energy market in, in Asia. 
And the the question that we're trying to answer in our research is, you know, given some under, underlying dynamics and trends, what is the impact of the Belt and Road Initiative? And so our sense is that sometimes people sort of over-criticize the Belt and Road Initiative. So if we take the example of coal, you know, if I look at coal in South Southeast Asia, sort of outside of China and India, you know, it started really growing in the late 90s, early 2000s, and went from about 10% of primary energy to 20% of primary energy in less than two de- decades, way before there was a Belt and Road Initiative, way before China was going out building or financing projects. So I think we have to ask ourselves also, what is it about coal in particular that this region likes and finds appealing, and why are they turning to coal? There is a tendency to think only of China as a party to this transaction, but it takes two to do a deal. Uh, And a lot of times, the concerns that we have may be as much with what China is willing to finance and support as it is with what countries themselves are asking for. So I think the spotlight on the greening of the Belt and Road Initiative is very positive. I think, uh, as John said, China has kind of gotten the message that this is a big uh, challenge for for the brand of the Belt and Road Initiative, and they have to address it. But I think we have to go a little bit deeper and try to figure out this is a region that has enormous infrastructure needs, that has enormous energy needs, and they would like to do the best thing, but I don't think they can really wait for the best thing. And so in some ways I see the, the demand for energy translating into demand for whatever projects they can get. So I think it's incumbent upon all of us to have a better conversation about how to meet the region's energy needs and how to channel the enormous resources of the Belt and Road Initiative towards a, a sort of greener uh, energy system in the region. Yeah, and you know certainly the region is growing, and, and the energy mix will you know likely continue to evolve. And I, I certainly think that uh, countries other than China also have a lot you know big role to play. You know, continue to present alternatives that are you know lower emissions, uh, etc. And but one of the the I guess bigger questions uh, that come to my mind uh, when I think of built and built and road um, energy initiatives, or maybe even non energy initiatives, is how do you define success? Like, you know, how do we know what is a successful built and road per Chinese definition and perhaps, but then also for the definition of, you know, stakeholders outside China in terms of energy, Nikos, and perhaps in terms of the non-energy stuff that you've been watching? Uh, John, I'd love to hear, you know, what, how you guys see. Yeah, I think this is a huge challenge because so far we haven't even been able to define what a Belt and Road project is, let alone what a successful project is. And I think that's one of the concerns with that I have with some of the initiatives that are announced. They seem to reflect an understanding that there's a concern, there's a need for reform in some areas, environment being one of them. But I'm not sure yet how much substance is in these. You know, they're, they're very, um, uh, like the Belt and Road itself, you know, it's got a catchy tagline. So let me give you one example. The Green Development International Alliance was established. Who wouldn't want to join? But if, after you sign up, what are you doing? I'm not sure. I'm not sure they know yet. And so, you know, there, there's been, I think, a hesitancy to put criteria on what qualifies as a project, probably a hesitancy to put criteria around measuring and tracking projects. I mean, that's something that we 
you know, we have a database now of almost 14,000 infrastructure projects, not just Chinese. And it's tough to, to track these things. And they take years to, um, to set up and years before you know whether they're going to be economically sustainable. And so, you know, I, I would love to see more criteria, more rigorous measurement, more sh- sharing of that information, more transparency. But I also recognize it's tough. Yeah. You know, transparency is definitely one, one of the challenges. Yeah. So to build on what John said, I think when I think about success, I think of, in particular, in the energy space, there's two levels. One is I think there's success that we can all agree on. Is the project financially viable? Can it make a return? Can it repay its debt? Is the project environmentally and socially responsible? Does it you know, not pollute the environment? Does it respect local populations where the project is being built? Um, is the procurement sort of transparent? Uh, can we be confident that there are no, there's no corruption in the development of the project? So I think there's a set of standards where even if we can argue a little bit over the details, we can all agree that these are hallmarks of a successful project. I think where it gets challenging on the energy side is that you have two fundamentally overlapping but also competing goals providing energy access and providing electricity and providing energy for growth on the one hand, and having a small environmental impact from that energy, whether it's in terms of local air pollution uh, or whether it's in terms of uh, carbon emissions. So I think the challenge that we face on the energy side is if you have a very modern coal plant being built that provides electricity to a lot of people that didn't have electricity before and and maybe it replaces even dirtier forms that they were using, is that a successful project? It's not obvious from from a distance what the answer is. Does it help us meet our uh, goals under the Paris Agreement and climate change? Probably not. Does it help us meet the sustainable development goals that say people should have access to energy and electricity to be able to grow? It does. So I think there is a tougher conversation on that second level when it comes to energy because you do have contradictory objectives and you do have the ability to show projects meeting one goal but not another. And I don't think we've yet figured out how to balance these two different approaches. And speaking of Paris, you know, I've noticed that throughout the numerous documents that came out of the three-day summit, there is a greater emphasis on Chinese commitment to align its green-related goals to the UN uh, Sustainable Development Goals. And I, I think it's very encouraging. And But I do wonder, you know, whether, you know, China ha- now sees less incentive to you know, go extra miles to to push climate agenda, you know, since uh, in Washington, you know, climate change isn't a, a high priority uh, to the current administration. And, you know, it's, um, for example, in you know, 2017, the city of London and the Chinese government entity committee uh, have established green investment principles. And I think it has a lot of great elements that point to the you know, greater commitment to have green financing. And, and plus now, you know, of course, this coalition that seems to involve, you know, multiple UN agencies. So there is the momentum, but I do wonder, you know, if the pace could have been faster, if the external environment were a little different. Yeah, I think the, the one thing I'll say, and, and just to build on what John said, I mean, clearly, the greening of the Belt and Road Initiative was an issue. And it doesn't seem that the 
announced withdrawal of the United States from the Paris Agreement really changed that. I think that that branding challenge for China was there, and the United States has somehow managed to keep up the pressure, the complaints about whether or not the Belt and Road Initiative is green, regardless of what it's doing vis-a-vis Paris. So I think what I haven't quite figured out, because obviously the Belt and Road Initiative is such a massive thing with so many different layers and drivers and pressure points, is, you know, on the one hand, there is a the shape of the Belt and Road as a response to external pressure that John described, but there's also kind of like an indigenous kind of like how you want to reshape the world and domestic actors and domestic political ambition. And clearly, if the U.S. is ceding leadership on climate, this is an opportunity for China to say, you know, we are stepping up, we are doing more. So I see both of those things sort of coming together, both the response to critique, but also seizing the vacuum on the global leadership front. The real question is, as John said, is these are a bunch of really nice words. What does that really mean? And does it really mean that at any point uh, you're going to see Chinese financial institutions pulling out or or making announcements to stop financing certain type of projects? That's the that's where the meat will be. I don't think we're quite there yet. Yeah, it's definitely, it is harder, I think, for the U.S. to make the case publicly that it, you know, is providing a better alternative with the position it's taken on the Paris Agreement. So, you know, I think we have the free and open Indo-Pacific strategy. If you could cram one more word in there, it should probably be free, open, and sustainable. And, you know, a sort of, a sort of better environmental p- positioning for the U.S. Um, and then there's also, you know, the U.S., I think, has weakened its position by not pursuing multilateral trade agreements, high standard multilateral trade agreements. And so when China has a forum like this and signs a mountain of MOUs, there's really nothing to compare those against. And those MOUs are really quite weak and bilateral and small compared to what you could be doing in a, you know, what has been a U.S. strength sort of multilateral trade strategy. So I think both of those things would be areas that could really strengthen the U.S. approach here. Speaking of multilateral, you know, the G7 is one of such. And, you know, one of the biggest news in recent months was, you know, Italy joined BRI and being the first G7 country. Have you been following some of the sort of the, I guess, European or major economy reactions to the, you know, what? China is trying to do under BRI, especially its effort to address many of these concerns that are, you know, raised against the track record, whether it's environmental or debt. Um, do you think these, you know, European economies may be able to exercise positive influence over the, the course of BRI um, projects going forward? I, I think that there is a European response that is building, and I think the I think Italy's decision to sign an MOU, I think, has galvanized that response. Um, I think China might ultimately regret pushing so hard for that. But I think we also have to remember, too, there was a debate in Italy and still a debate in Italy about whether that was the right thing to do. And um, so I don't think we can assume that there's, you know, a vast reserve of public support for that in Italy. And then, you know, you see the EU sort of getting its own house in order. Um, It now has uh, an ambassador for connectivity. um, And that's sort of one you know, Brussels position that is going to help, it's going to help articulate and execute their um, position, not just on belt, you know, not just in response to Belt and Road, but other issues. They also, they, you know, they have a EU-China connectivity strategy. And so I think all of that is positive. You know, we need to wait and see. They have elections coming up, 
They're going to, I think, hopefully get about 60 billion euro to use. It's interesting. The U.S. came up with about 60 billion for the Build Act, and maybe the EU is going to come up with about 60 billion euro for um, some of their connectivity initiatives. And then you you have the member states who have their own pots of uh, of money, and certainly Germany and France, I think, have an interest in trying to hold the house together. Yeah, I think the, I mean, what's striking to me is. You're definitely seeing, as John said, a, a different conversation in Europe about how to engage with China. But I think, and putting on my, you know, coming from Europe hat, the question of a big infrastructure gap, that, that's kind of what's driving this, is that uh, investment in Europe just isn't where it needs to be. There are some vehicles that the European institutions have deployed at various points, uh, on the energy front, actually, some of the most successful initiatives that Europe has had in terms of accelerating projects that are on this kind of like verge of commerciality or that have a very clear strategic int- purpose, either in terms of diversification of energy resources or connectivity. So Europe has uh, a lot of experience actually sort of deploying finance in a sort of strategic way in terms of, it, in terms of its energy objectives, but the scale is just not nowhere near what it needs to be. So I think what we're seeing now is kind of the evolution of that conversation in Europe. And, and as John said, I'm hoping that this will be a positive influence in terms of what BRI looks like when you start having to incorporate the views of some bigger, more established actors. And I also wonder to what extent the, the slowdown in the Chinese economic growth may impact uh, how the infrastructure projects get uh, marketed, if you will. So, you know, on the, the one of the objectives of BRI that I always was interested in following was the the helps China address the excess capacity issue, whether it's the manufacturing, I mean, including the labor issue. You know, as the economy starts to slow down, or that the the growth rate, you know, uh, starts to slow down, go down, then um, there might be added incentive to push uh, some of these projects overseas. At the same time, you know, when you hear about, you know, the uh, President Xi Jinping's outreach to Africa, for example, much more of of the aid side of the the discussion, uh, there seems to be growing frustration among the Chinese public that the Chinese government is giving away money while the, you know, the domestic economy can use it. So, I mean, obviously, these are not necessarily at the, the same level of analysis, if you will. But you know, I do wonder how the internal um, you know, economic dynamics or perhaps the change in the political economy may also push certain agenda forward while they, you know, the other agenda may continue to struggle. I think one of the challenges, too, is if growth continues to slow and they also, you know, in terms of they have, I think, about a quarter less of reserves now than when Belt and Road was announced. And so you have a little bit less money to lend, which has been a huge driver of this, right? That's how you get recipient countries on the hook to use your, your companies as you give them this financing. And so at the same time that they're trying to very focused on exp- expanding the number of participants, I mean, according to state media, they're now up to 150 or something like that, countries that have signed cooperation documents whatever that means. But, you know, you're expanding the, the, you know, basically number of mouths at the table and you've got less to, you know, dole out. And so I think that that, that could be a challenge or could lead to some 
some more sort of growing disappointment with what it means to participate in this. Uh, but I also think the the domestic drivers have always been one of the biggest drivers of this. And I, I wonder on the energy side, you know, is is there is there a chance that as Chinese companies, it seems like they they have taken some technology that they no longer want in China for environmental reasons, but they're happy to sell it elsewhere. Is there a chance that at some point those companies are making higher quality technology and that is something that greens the Belt and Road? You know, in, in essence, they've sold off enough of the old stuff and they're on to new things. Is, is that something that we could see? Well, here's how I'm thinking about this, and I think you're absolutely right. In our world of energy, sort of the the Chinese sort of going out policy is is almost kind of like 30 years now when the Chinese companies first started going out and picking up oil and gas assets and engaging with the rest of the world. And I think it's quite interesting to see how much has changed because when they first went out, they weren't going after the best assets because people already had the best assets. You were going wherever you could. You're going at high-risk places. You're probably paying a little bit more than you should have to get into assets. And it took a while for the oil and gas industry of China to become more sophisticated, to become more mature, to understand political and commercial risk in a more sophisticated way. So I do wonder when I look at the Belt Road Initiative is, are we just kind of seeing that first step where you're just selling what you have. You're not really thinking about the customer. You're not really having an incredibly sophisticated understanding of the possibilities to go up the value chain. And so if you look at the oil and gas side, you know, it probably took, depending on how you do the math, I mean, you know, maybe 10, 15 years. But today, if you look at the oil and gas companies of China, the national oil companies, you know, they operate in many ways similar to Western sort of private companies, not necessarily in all extents, but in terms of what projects they go after, how much they pay for those projects, how they behave in those projects. Oftentimes they work alongside Western companies in joint ventures. So there's been a huge sort of learning process that took place. So I do think there is a natural evolution that we'll see. The only thing that complicates that, I think, is the sense that we're up against a clock in terms of climate change, right? That if it takes them 10 years or 15 years to say, okay, we should stop selling the lowest value, kind of dirtiest stuff, that's going to bake into our budget a huge amount of emissions that's going to be very hard to tackle. I think that's the only dimension that makes it qualitatively different from the past. So there we kind of need the learning to happen faster yeah. uh, than it did in the past. Could you guys put into context like what it means when a power plant is announced? I mean, these are assets that have a pretty long life, right? Yeah, so I was going to say, yeah. Serbia announces a new coal-fired power plant. What does that mean yeah. for them and, and the timeline that you're talking about? Yeah, so I think the, the major challenge that we face is that coal plants, uh, I mean, anyone who builds any new infrastructure is thinking at least of 20 years to get paid back. But once you've paid the money back, you have a thing that's running, you're just running it on operating cost. These projects can run for 40, 50, 60 years. So you have a huge challenge in terms of the existing infrastructure that when you build something today, you're putting something on your on your balance sheet and you're putting something on your carbon balance sheet for 40, 50 years. Now, 
we've learned from even the United States experience that, you know, if you do have a more competitive source of energy that can come in, just because you have a plant doesn't mean that it will keep running forever. So you've seen coal plants in the United States basically shut down because they've become uneconomic to to operate. But that's a much more difficult outcome in countries where energy demand is still growing. And it's also going to be harder if there's still sort of debt uh, tied to those projects. And it's also very hard, as we've learned in the United States, the political economy of closing down stranded capital is not very easy. So I think we're faced not just with a sort of economic challenge of finding ways to be able to replace these assets, but also a political economy and possibly an international political economy if there's foreign debt tied to those projects. So, so there is a certain amount of longevity that is attached to these assets that we really have to think very creatively, not just how to stop the pipeline of new projects or how to draw down the pipeline of new projects, but also the stuff that's there. We just can't have all the projects that are now online and under construction run through you know, 60 years of operating life. We just that, that can't really happen, or at least our world won't be a lot of fun if that happens. So as we you know, uh, continue to look at uh, infrastructure issues and also including energy, you know, as researchers, you know, there's still, I think, a lot that we want to know and we need to know. Like how, what are some of the, the top things that you're after as you try to better understand? John? Contracts. If I could get my hands on more contracts, I think we would we would have a much better understanding of the financial terms. And also, I mean, each contract rep- represents a negotiation that happened, right, between two parties. And sometimes those are balanced negotiations, balanced both in terms of power and also technical capacity. And sometimes they're quite imbalanced, and you end up seeing strange things in there. Um, and so I think, you know, if China is committed to being more transparent, if it does want to reduce corruption, if it does want to increase debt sustainability, making the terms of contracts public would be a huge step. Yeah, I just wanted to build on that. I think the question of transparency uh, in terms of contract, and even I appreciate your wish list, John, contracts don't just appear very often, but even a broad sense of understanding what the commercial terms are or in energy projects, a lot of times the way we deal with this is when you have multilateral lending or multiple stakeholders, then at least you know that you may not know the terms, but if you know that the World Bank was there or the IFC was there or uh, you know JBIC was there, then even if you don't know the commercial terms, you have a sense at least that the terms were adhering to some kind of principles. But I think the question of, of, of data and transparency more broadly, I mean, as John said at the beginning, we still can't quite define the Belt and Road Initiative fully. But what has struck me as I've been researching this topic is how easy it is for folks to take big numbers that are announced and sort of take those as firm numbers and sort of add up things. Or it's very difficult to figure out who exactly the institutions are, what numbers are real and what numbers are not. A lot of times we're going on very sort of thin layers of evidence where a news article says there's half a billion dollars attached to this project, and then you realize that this project has never been heard of again, and everyone is quoting this 500 million. Um, so I think we have some real challenges. You know, I can go 
on the IFC website. I can go on the OPIC website and download a spreadsheet where they say, here's all the projects that we are lending money to or providing insurance to. And that's probably a little bit further down the line. But I think the closer you can get to that, where people can at least start having a conversation from a common base, common numbers, that I think will do go a long way to address the, the concerns that we have about transparency and what exactly the Belt and Road is and is becoming. Yeah. And, you know, back in 2013, I guess a couple months before the BRI was launched, you know, Chinese government issued this guidance that basically calls on its uh, companies, Chinese companies and, and entities to borrow, quote unquote, borrow the, uh, I guess, international standards, multilateral development bank standards when it comes to lending and et cetera. You know, the, uh, seven years later, I guess this is the seventh year since BRI got launched. I think, you know, and I would have liked to see a little more transparency. And and certainly China has become too big of an economy. It's the, the second largest, but still not the member of OECD. So it's not bound by many of the OECD uh, restrictions and, and you know, uh, guidelines in terms of disclosing the terms of agreements, contracts, and, and you know, how they basically spend their taxpayers' money, uh, if there is such a notion even that resonates with the Chinese public that I don't know. But, you know, there's still a um, way to go. I'd love to see, you know, I think the other the other side of this too is that recipient countries are also sometimes incentivized to keep things opaque or certain actors in those countries are. And I think there have been enough bad experiences now that have come to light that, you know, if if China is hesitant to make terms public, there could be some kind of effort among recipient countries to share information, you know, some kind of database or information sharing made available so that they can see the range of terms that it's being offered. And especially with, you know, the much smaller developing economies, they could then hopefully help avoid some of those really imbalanced outcomes. And we have a lot of experience with this in the energy space, the Extractive Industries Transparency Initiative, which tried to look at least at the financial flows in terms of you know, how much are oil and gas companies paying in royalty and taxes. And it was really an effort to address questions of corruption and also, you know, being able to connect the supply of money to the demand of money and, and putting those two things together. So, and model contracts, things like that. So we do have a lot of experience in sort of how to do this. We just haven't quite, I think, applied it in this world. And that would be a very welcome development. Thanks for listening to Energy 360. For more CSIS work on BRI, check out our Reconnecting Asia website and find more episodes of Energy 360 on CSIS.org, on iTunes, and follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy.